Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us in Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy polls on the expansion of the opium trade in Afghanistan. Please welcome our speakers, Florence Baumeister, former supervisory special agent for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, and Paul Larkin, Jr., Rumpel Senior Legal Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come and spend this portion of it with us. What we hope to do today is educate you about the facts regarding a very important issue. Whatever the so-called access of evil might have been years ago, today it is the combination of international terror networks, transnational organized crime syndicates, and state-approved or privately created and operated large-scale narco-trafficking enterprises. There often is a close nexus among those three groups because of the huge profits that drug trafficking produces. The result is that the same evil people often wear three different but related hats. Consider the danger that this problem presents us. In her book, Seeds of Terror, Gretchen Peters wrote that it cost Osama bin Laden only $500,000 to carry out the 9-11 attacks. At the time her book was published in 2009, however, Al-Qaeda was making more than half a million dollars per week from narcotics trafficking. The upshot is that terrorists then and now can financially afford to make us suffer a 9-11 type loss every seven days or less. What effect will the fall of Afghanistan have on drug trafficking and terror? Will our withdrawal make narco-terrorism more likely? Will Afghanistan become a narco-state? To answer those questions and decide how to respond to the answers, we need to know the facts. Not the facts as described for us by Washington, D.C. politicians, but the facts known by the people on the ground in dangerous lands. We start that education today. We have an expert to tell us the facts based on his experience in dealing with Afghani narcotics trafficking. He is retired DEA supervisory special agent, Larry Baumeister. Larry, the floor is yours. Thanks, Paul. Um, so we have a relatively short period of time to cover a lot of information. So what I'm gonna do in the time that I have initially before our question and answer is kind of talk about a brief history of how we got to where we are today, um, to talk about any expansion of opium and heroin trade, we have to kind of know what we're expanding from. So in three parts, I'm going to try and bring us back to, to where we are now. Um, the first part is going to be about the Taliban and the drug trade. Um, prior to 9-11. The second part, which is probably the largest part, is uh, th the same, the Taliban and drug trafficking 
that went from 9-11 up until just recently when the U.S. and the coalition forces left Afghanistan. And then finally, and this part is, is, is going to be um, something we'll be talking about, I'm sure, afterwards, is what's going to happen post, you know, U.S. leaving Afghanistan. So getting to the first part. Um, so DEA has been in the region, um, if not in Afghanistan, for, for decades um, and prior to 9-11. Uh, we were working out of our embassies in uh, Pakistan and in Turkey, uh, maintaining a relationship with those in Afghanistan, knowing who is, who were the players prior to 9-11, who were the narco-terrorists, who were the Taliban that were supporting them. Uh, there was a myth that went around uh, in the a lot of people within the government that the Taliban was not involved in drug trafficking prior to 9-11. Um, there's a little bit of truth to it, but it, it really goes to show the complexity of it. So prior to 9-11, some of the top Afghan drug traffickers, the kingpins the DEA was aware of, made a deal with the Taliban where the Taliban was going to reduce opium production, but they made a deal with these top level drug traffickers to allow them to amass a stockpile of opium so that once the Taliban reduced production, they would basically corner the market and the Taliban would um, gain profits from that. So, so they made a deal and then they decided to reduce the, the opium production. So there was, there was a plan from the beginning for the Taliban to make money and profit from, from the drug trafficking. So bringing us around to where post 9-11, um, everything changed and so, you can kind of see on the map here. So when U.S. and coalition forces came into, into Afghanistan, they did control a, a large portion of the country, but there were always swaths of land that were under Taliban control. And what we're gonna be talking about here mostly is along the Eastern and, and the Southern parts of Afghanistan. If you look, um, the three main provinces from, from East to West along the, the border with Pakistan, you've got Kandahar, Helmand and Nimroz province, which we always refer to as the tri-border area with Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Um, and there's a little dimple at the bottom of Hel Helmand province, which is the, the, the town of Baram Shah, which was always like um, no man's land. It's where the drug traffickers and the Taliban all merged together, and it was a protected area. A lot of the drug labs were set up there um, under the protection of, of the Taliban. So even when we were at our, our, our biggest surge of troops in Afghanistan, there were always these swaths of land that were under Taliban control. And so when we were targeting these people over the years, it was always in Taliban controlled areas because that's where the main traffickers were, were located. Um, so during this time also, DEA increased its presence in Afghanistan. Uh, we had uh, a big office in Kabul and we had in Kandahar and, and in Jalalabad and other places. Um, but what we were doing, you know, in the country, in Afghanistan is working with the Afghan National Police, helping training the prosecutors to do drug cases, to do major drug cases. Um, they set up a judicial wiretap, which really helped uh, target and prosecute internally within Afghanistan, those traffickers that were 
that were able to be arrested in Afghanistan. So all of that was was extremely helpful. And those judicial wiretaps not just helped in drug cases, they also helped um, counter threat. They captured a lot of information. As you can imagine, drug traffickers are dealing with a lot of other nefarious characters. And so they picked up information that was for the benefit of, of um, not just DEA, but for other US and Afghan entities. Um, so that was, a, that was a big deal there. Uh, at, at another point during this time, there was a major change in transportation. Um, if you could change slides, please. So what was happening historically is Afghan heroin would go through Iran, protected by uh, Iranian intelligence, going to Turkey and then through Europe or up through the northern route through the stands into, into Russia. But what started to happen during this time around 2009, we noticed it uh, even more, was they would bring it down through Pakistan. Uh, Pakistani ISI intelligence service would, would help with the transportation and protect it down through uh, down to the coast of Pakistan and Iran, the, the Makran coast. And there, maritime transporters started moving mass quantities of Afghan heroin down into, into East Africa, mostly Tanzania and Mozambique. And so at this time, the largest stockpile of Afghan heroin outside of Afghanistan was in East Africa. Um, and from there, it was shotgunned all over the world, including to the, to the Western Hemisphere. So something else that happened here that was extremely important, around 2006, the U.S. passed a, a, a new law, uh, the 960A law, which is referred to as the narco-terrorism law, which was a game changer for, for DEA and, and the U.S. This allowed U.S. law enforcement entities to charge foreign drug traffickers with providing material support to terrorist organizations. So the thing that was different with this law as opposed to any other um, importation laws is we did not have to prove that the drugs were going to the United States, which even though we knew Afghan heroin was always to some degree going to the US, it changed hands so many times, you really had a difficult time proving the knowledge. But this changed that. If we could prove that someone was a drug trafficker in Afghanistan and was providing money to the Taliban, which we knew was happening, we can charge them and prosecute them in the United States. Which brings us to, besides the DEA presence in Afghanistan, we also had a team set up at uh, the DEA Special Operations Division, the Bilateral Investigations Unit, that was tasked with doing extraterritorial cases around the world. And we had a team set up to focus on Afghanistan. If you can go to the next slide, please. So what you see on, on the next slide is some success stories that the U.S. government had um, targeting high-level kingpin narco-terrorists operating in Afghanistan. Uh, and most of them, if not all of them, were operating in Taliban-controlled areas. But we were able to um, gather evidence proving that they were supporting the Taliban, and not just the Taliban, um, Al-Qaeda and the Haqqani network, and we were able to get them out of Afghanistan and get them extradited for a judicial expulsion to the U.S. where they were prosecuted and found guilty um, 
of of narco terrorism and have many of them are are still in jail uh, facing very long prison sentences so it just goes to show that we can reach out and we can touch people even in areas where where we can't uh gain access ourselves for for safety so um so that brings us to to um this the third part of this presentation what happens what happens now as of august um when the us and coalition forces pulled out um so initially right off the bat we know that our mentoring of the afghan national police we know that the 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 prosecutors that helped on these cases that judicial wiretap that not only helped put people in jail in afghanistan but it it gave threat information to protect the afghans as well as all of us is now gone most likely never to return um and let alone the whole separate subject of what happened to those police and prosecutors that worked with us and, and helped us. I mean, that's that's clearly one of the things that, that will never, um, you know, go back. And, and, you know, we all hope and pray that um, as many people got out as possible that, that helped all of us. Um, but the, the other thing is clearly there was major drug trafficking, heroin and opium production, you know, during the time that the coalition forces were there. But even as, as recently as like the last couple of weeks, we're getting information that the major kingpins, who we know who they are, and and we're constantly trying to build cases against them, are telling people that this is now that the Taliban's in in control, they don't have to put up appearances or hide anymore. They can be out in the open, and it'll make things much easier for them. So that's clearly something that's that's going to uh, happen moving forward. And finally, the Taliban. Al Qaeda, the Haqqani network—you know—they've been increasingly involved in in the drug trafficking, um, where they used to just maybe profit from taxing the the, the movement of drugs or production. Now they're actually a part of it, more like a an, an organized crime syndicate, where they're involved in the actual drug trafficking, not just making money off of taxes. So they're going to be making much more money, which is going to be helpful to them as as most of their money is now frozen. So that's gonna be a big part moving forward. So that's just a quick little little summary to kind of get us from where we started to where we are now. So Paul, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you, Larry. Let me ask you a question. In, in the book that I mentioned earlier, Seeds of Terror, Gretchen Peters said that there was powerful circumstantial evidence that Osama bin Laden profited from opium trafficking. In fact, a spokesman for then British Prime Minister Tony Blair publicly said that UBL was estimated to have a personal supply of 20 to 30 tons, not pounds, tons of opium. Uh, did you see evidence that Al-Qaeda, not just the Taliban, but Al-Qaeda was profiting from drug trafficking? And is that, if so, is that likely to continue, uh, go away, uh, or in fact increase? Um, the short answer is is yes. I mean, having done this for a long period of time, we've spoken to a lot of different people that were operating in in Afghanistan during that time. You're you're talking pre 9/11 um, to shortly after 9/11, um, and and yeah, we've 
talked to many people who who gave information that Al Qaeda was was involved to some degree with the drug trafficking. So so yeah, that's that's true. But but to be clear, the Taliban, you know, was always historically more involved with the drug trafficking, just because there there are more of them in there and they're physically there. But but yes, we we definitely did get information that Al Qaeda was um, was involved to some degree, not in not in the way that the Taliban was, but they were definitely getting money from the drug trade. How much of that drug trade, if you know, or even can estimate, winds up in the United States uh, rather than coming from Mexico? Uh, we know that heroin comes into the U.S. from Mexico. How much of it from Afghanistan makes its way to the U.S., and how does that happen? Well, we could probably do a whole um, talk on that subject alone. But so clearly, because of the, the proximity to Mexico and the, the poorest Mexican border, the vast majority of, of drugs, um, including heroin, coming into the United States come from Mexico. I don't think anyone doubts that. But I do think there is a, a, a dispute among law enforcement um, about how much Afghan heroin is in fact coming into the United States. So, so as I said previously, there's this uh, gigantic stockpile of tons and tons of heroin sitting in East Africa. The East African um, drug traffickers ship it everywhere. But anyone who's worked heroin cases on the East Coast of the United States knows that besides Mexican heroin, you've got African um, uh, uh, heroin uh, drug trafficking organizations that bring heroin into the United States. Now, we know that Mexican heroin doesn't get shipped to Africa when you have a, a big porous border with, with Mexico. So any, any heroin coming from African uh, DTOs, drug trafficking organizations into the US is Afghan heroin. Now, another piece to this puzzle is Canada has, for the last 10 years, said that at least 80% of the heroin they seize in Canada comes from Afghanistan, um, which is the direct opposite from the United States. And all that heroin doesn't stay in, in Canada or, or opium. Just recently, two years ago, the Canadians seized a ton um, of, hero, of opium in a container from a ship that came out of Pakistan and it, and it was seized. Um, so as we also know, what we seize is really a small portion of what is actually uh, is actually showing up. So, so yeah, there's clearly Afghan heroin coming into the United States. How much? That's a whole uh, subject where um, DEA does signature analysis of our seizures where we can determine where it comes from. But some of the other government agencies don't do that. If if heroin is seized at an airport, for example, by, from an African carrying um, uh, like 10 pounds of heroin in a suitcase, they won't necessarily do a signature analysis. So if it came from Af Afghanistan, we would we would never know that. Um, and of course, when you're focused on your biggest threat, which is the the border with Mexico you would expect that, that that's where you're going to seize the most heroin and you're not really focusing or looking at the border with Canada. So it's kind of a, a long answer, but the question is, I, I think 
everyone that I know who who talks about this subject matter believes that there's more heroin coming into the United States than than formally the gov the government of the U.S. is acknowledging. Larry, we um, left our the Afghanistan uh, last month uh, or August. We no longer have boots on the ground there. How much does leaving hurt our ability to learn what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan? I mean, I, I know the DEA does a great job trying to gather intelligence uh, in all sorts of countries where we don't have the military. Uh, but how much of a injury did we suffer when the military left Afghanistan in our ability to learn what's happening and try to interdict it? Well, I mean, clearly the, the military's presence made it easier for DEA to operate there. But but as far as the intelligence we were getting, um, you know, it was more we got our intelligence from our our presence in Afghanistan, not necessarily from from the military, because, as I said, DEA's relationship in that part of the world goes back decades. Um, and there's continuity there that, you know, we're talking to the same people now that we were talking to 20 years ago. And, and there's a relationship there. Um, but what's gone forever, like I said, not to repeat myself, without the presence of the judicial wiretap, without the presence of, of you know, dealing with the Afghan police, and they have their own network of sources that we did not have as well. So. Um, that's all gone. We can't get that back. But from an optimistic point of view, all of those success stories that I showed you that, that we have, and those are all great stories in and amongst themselves. There were really bad people that were providing massive quantities of, of money to, to um, the Taliban, um, Al-Qaeda, and the Haqqani network. And a lot of them were true believers in terms of... Um, some people paid money to the Taliban because they had to. They didn't like them, but in order to be a drug trafficker, you had to pay money. Others were true believers in the Taliban cause and gave much more money than they were required to give because they believed in what the Taliban was doing. But because of, of this relationship, like I said, we were able to um, build cases in Taliban-controlled areas, much like it is now. Um, to so, so a certain degree, those big kingpin targets um, I think we have the ability to to get them from the outside, but all of the the, the cases and all of the internal um, prosecutions that were done in conjunction with the you know with the um, Afghan National Police, yeah, that's that's going to be near impossible to do those kind of cases from the outside. At Pakistan is an ally of the United States on many things, but. In this field, it seems like they sometimes are an ally, and according to reports I've read, they're sometimes in, uh, supporting the drug trafficking. Uh, what can you tell us about our ability to rely on Pakistan to assist us in dealing with transnational drug trafficking? Yeah, as you said, that's a complex question. Um, you know, we have information that um, a lot of the major drug traffickers in that part of the world, because they would, they're Afghans in most cases, but they would lay their head in Pakistan across the border, where I showed you uh, across from Helmand Province and 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 
and from Kandahar province, if there was ever a threat, they just go across the, the border and they knew they were protected by, by Pakistan. Now, when I say Pakistan intelligence, the ISI protected a lot of the, the, um, the drug traffickers. I mean, th that is true. That doesn't mean that ISI itself was supporting the drug traffickers, but elements within ISI were definitely doing that. That was something from the moment that I started working this area was the connection that, that there were those within ISI that were either escorting, um, you know, drug shipments through Pakistan to get to, to get to um, the, the coast, to get put on ships, uh, and, and they were protected. So, yeah, I mean, that's been that's been going on a long time. And it's and it's Iran as well, where where, you know, their intelligence service was working with the traffickers to escort the drugs through their country to get into into Europe as, as well. So, yeah, that's that's been going on a long time. And I don't think it's just drug trafficking. I'm sure other elements of the U.S. government would would also chime in about other ways that that, you know, Pakistan was was helping the Taliban. You mentioned uh, the drugs going into Europe, and from what I've read, they also go into Russia. Have the have the, have the European Union and its constituent nations, as well as Russia, been any help in trying to address this problem? So it's interesting because the you know the Russians, as far as working with the United States, has been almost non-existent in recent years. But the one area where we did come together on some some common ground and some investigations was was drug trafficking. Because with DEA is not a political organization, it's just a police organization, you know, that that goes after drug traffickers. And so there was some some sharing of information with with Russia during during this time. Um, but within Europe, so the British were clearly involved. They were in in Afghanistan. They had they were working with the the Afghans just like we were um, with some uh, judicial wiretap information, and so so they put themselves right there on the front line as as well. Um, but we did work with with the European countries because we had a lot of times the the laws that they didn't have. Most European countries don't have conspiracy laws, don't have um, ex extraterritorial. Um, opportunities to go after those those targets. So there's only so much they can do legally. But the police themselves have been very receptive to working with us. And we've passed information to them um, that led to seizures in, in their countries as, as well. So a lot of it is not that they don't want to, it's just that their laws don't allow them to do as much as the, as the US laws. And I'll just throw in um, um, some kudos to, to Australia as well, because they had a a big presence in Afghanistan, and they they understand the importance of of the heroin trade and and the drug trade uh, in financing the Taliban and other terrorist networks. So they've been very helpful as well. What about the Afghan police and army? I know you said that uh, there's a great risk that the people who helped you uh, are now in peril. But when they were helping you, uh, how well equipped and how well motivated were they to help the DEA? You know, I, I would say it's it's like in most developing countries, you know, where 
you really have to you know pick and choose who you're working with. So in in Afghanistan, we had a, a vetted unit that we worked with over there that were polygraphed, you know, on, on a regular basis. Um, so so we had some trust in 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 that unit, um, that specific unit that we were working with. But just like anywhere, there's there's good and there's there's bad police. And when you're not getting paid very much, and there's millions of dollars floating around. And it's not just the police, it's the government officials and, and stuff, you know, even at the highest level of, of, the, of the, the government. So to, to say that there was some corruption amongst the Afghan police, yes, but that it was, you know, not just there, it was up and down the whole, the, the whole government and not just in Afghanistan as well. As, like I said, if you're getting paid a little bit of money and you're barely putting food on the table and and people are offering you a lot of money there 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 is that potential so yeah i mean I, there was that there but i think overall the people that we were working with specifically uh did a good job larry now that you're retired have you reflected on what you would have done differently during the time you worked for the dea about addressing the problems in afghanistan well I mean, it's it's complex, but 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 one of the issues is, um, you know, you have to pick and choose who you're targeting for prosecution in country, and those that you know would stand no chance of seeing a jail cell in Afghanistan, and and choosing to prosecute those people elsewhere because in Afghanistan it was it was not possible for those people that I, I showed you on the screen would never have seen a jail cell. They were connected to the very top levels of, of government. Um, so, uh, yeah, so th th that would be, I think, trying to get those people in jail um, outside the United States, getting more of those type of people, because even though they get replaced clearly, just like Pablo Escobar after he died, you know, they, they replaced him uh, eventually, but it does stop the flow of money to those people that are trying to do us harm. And it may take them a, a, another step to, to replace those kind of people. And if you keep going after them and know that we can, that we can get our hands on them, it, it'll, it'll change the way they do business. Larry, we're getting very short on time. Is there anything you would like to add to what you said? either in terms of what you know, what we need to do, or what you would do if you were king for a day and trying to direct how we deal with this problem? Well, I would say, you know, yeah, things look bad right now. I mean, clearly after, after the, the way the, the withdrawal went, but it, it could also be an opportunity if you, if you wanna be a positive thinker because all of those, traffickers and the actual Taliban members that are involved in the drug trafficking are probably going to let down their guard, right? There's nothing for them to internally be afraid of anymore. And that, that could be an opportunity um, for, for those in the U.S. government to, to continue to target these people and take really bad people off the, the battlefield. So, you know, as a takeaway, I would say, you know, thinking positive, I, I, there's an opportunity here if, if the U.S. continues to, to um, keep doing what we've been doing. Larry, let me thank you very much. I appreciate 
not just the time you spent preparing for this, as well as presenting what you know, but all the years of service you gave to the people of America, both in the US military and in the Drug Enforcement Administration. You, you mentioned trying to give kudos to uh, the Australians earlier. I wanna give them to you as well. Thank you very much for everything you've done. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you.